Well, as you know, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to one of the most famous sections of what is um, called the Sermon on the Plains, and it's the teaching, Love Your Enemies. Again, we're in chapter 6. We're going to pick it up with verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you much thanks that you are kind and gracious even to the ungrateful and even to the evil because here we sit. Lord, thank you for the kindness we have been shown in Jesus Christ, for the graciousness you have shown to us despite our sin, in fact, in face of our sin. We thank you for this time together. We pray that it would be beneficial for us, that we would be shaped to your word, moved by your word, and our feet would be moved to follow you through this word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we mentioned last week in this block of teaching, Jesus is primarily addressing his apostles, who are the 12 Uh, They're set apart as official witnesses to his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension with the larger group of disciples surrounding them. But there are others there too. Most likely there are some God-fearing Gentiles among them or people who are just merely interested as well as his opponents like the Pharisees and scribes. All would have been just kind of intermingled together alongside his apostles as well. And his teaching here is not about how to become a Christian. Sometimes Christians mistakenly read it that way, in particular in light of that last phrase of the section I just read. But rather, what this is about is what the disciple, that is, those who are already committed to Jesus, what they look like. It's kind of similar with the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. This is what my disciples, this is the pattern for their life in prayer. Well, the same is, is true here as well. And that said, if you look at verses 27 and 28, Uh, You can't really tell this in the English, but they're addressed to the disciples as a group in that all the you pronouns are best understood as y'all, as in, but I say to y'all who hear, love y'all's enemies, do good to those who hate y'all, bless those who curse, pray for those who abuse y'all. That's not redneck, that's just good English. Now notice that that Jesus speaks with his his own authority here. He says, but I say to you, that is, I say to y'all. And the reason he says this is because he is the word of the Lord, or as John says, he is the logos. And in turn, 
Notice his disciples are those who hear him. And this is a familiar pattern actually established with Adam in Scripture. It's just like what John 10, when, when Jesus says, My sheep know my, my voice. And it's, it's like the story Chad Bird, who is a Lutheran Old Testament scholar I like, that he recounted about what a, a doctoral student once observed during her time in Israel. And he writes, One day while walking on a road near Bethlehem, Judith, who is the doctoral student, watched as three shepherds converged with their separate flocks of sheep. The three men hailed each other and then stopped to talk. While they were conversing, their sheep intermingled, melting into one big flock. Wondering how the three shepherds would ever be able to identify their own sheep, Judith waited until the men were ready to say their goodbyes. She watched, fascinated, as each of the shepherds called out to his sheep. At the sound of their shepherd's voice, like magic, the sheep separated again into three flocks. Apparently, some things in Israel haven't changed for thousands of years. So in our passage, that's the image. In our passage, Jesus is addressing what appears to be one big intermingled flock of apostles, disciples, the uncommitted, maybe God-fearing Gentiles, his opponents, but only his sheep listen to him and follow him. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And that's a famous phrase, and perhaps the most poignant or pertinent question we might ask is, okay, who's my enemy? Who's my enemy? And in a certain sense, it's the flip side of the question, who is my neighbor? Which was famously put to Jesus in Luke 10, which led to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the immediate context for Jesus' teaching comes from verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So there you go. There's your enemy. So his disciples' enemies are the people who hate them on account of Jesus. And that might very well be the leaders of Israel or the Pharisees and scribes who were supposedly the good guys or perhaps even their own families. That is, their, their enemies, they might be the Romans. And, and Matthew's version of this same kind of sermon in the Sermon on the Mount has examples that speak to life under Roman occupation. But it might be people who the disciples would naturally see as the good guys or as good people. After all, Jesus' hometown synagogue in Nazareth attempted to kill him after he preached there. That fate may await the apostles and disciples, too, on account of Jesus. So what Jesus teaches here is not theoretical or ideological or an unobtainable ethic. It's actually very practical. Just consider, when he was on the cross, having been put there at the insistence of his own people who were at that moment mocking him, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's Luke 23. It's why the church is often described as cruciform. We are a cross-shaped people. So if you were watching that coronation yesterday, for good reason, Westminster Abbey, if you were to look at it from up top, it is built in the shape of a cross. And notice the practical application that this cruciform life of the disciple will take. 
He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So these are both tangible, action-oriented things that are done in the real world. This is not thoughts and feelings. These are things you actually do. And another way of saying it is kind of akin to Micah 6.8. Pursue justice and mercy for those who do not pursue such things for you. He says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And these are speech-oriented actions. These are, they are things that we say to or about our enemies. And like with Jesus, these are things that we can offer up to God in prayer. Father, forgive. I mean, how different would the world be, and perhaps we ourselves as a church, if we took seriously what Jesus says here and actually prayed for our enemies, maybe even publicly with the pastoral prayer. Well, with verses 29 and 30, Jesus changes from the plural y'alls to singular you, and he's again giving practical examples of what it might look like for an individual disciple to love his enemy. In verse 29, the one who slaps you across the cheek, and this is not a closed fist punch, but the stinging insult of a slap, well, to that person, give them your other cheek too. This anticipates what Jesus would endure as both an innocent man and the rightful judge of the world at the hands of the Sanhedrin, where he was literally slapped for telling the truth. That's Matthew 26, and many of his disciples, most notably Paul and Peter, they would endure the same thing. Jesus followed this up with, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And the typical Jewish man wore two pieces of clothing, a tunic that functioned like underwear, and a cloak that was his outerwear. So in other words, if someone steals your outer garment, be willing to suffer the shame of public nakedness too. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus endured on the cross, as people nailed to crosses were always stripped naked first. But that doesn't show up in Christian art, tells you how much we love our Lord Jesus Christ. The Romans stripped him nude. That is the shame and humiliation of the cross. And Jesus' point is that there may come a time, and again, this is Matthew 16, when his disciples would endure public humiliation of this sort, even death on crosses, because they are his sheep, and they know his voice. Jesus says in verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And Jesus in his ministry to the crowds, of course, did not hesitate to give himself to those who begged of him, in particular with healings and exorcisms, but in light of his theme of persecution, which is what this entire section is about. It's entirely about persecution. He did this in particular for the murdering revolutionary beside him on the cross who asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And of course, to the Roman soldiers who took his clothes and gambled for them within eyeshot of the cross, no less, he did not yell out, thieves, you dirty thieves, give me back my clothes. No. Jesus ends the section with, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So at no time during his persecution 
did Jesus deviate from walking in the way of the Lord? At no time did that awful experience, in that awful experience, did the fruit of the Spirit cease to apply or be at work in him. No, just the opposite. It's during those moments that the fruit of the Spirit is most on display because no one, no one in their own natural sinful state will do these things that Jesus commands we do. Only those who are indwelled by the Spirit and are actively being sanctified by him will do this. And so Jesus is thinking through the summary of the second table of the law of love your neighbor as yourself with the added fruit of the Spirit depth to love the one who persecutes you as if that person is your neighbor. Because in the disciples' case, it most likely would be a Jewish neighbor or family member who does this to them. Now, I think Christians over the ages have mistakenly removed Jesus' teaching from its immediate context, turning these into general laws. And of course, there is something to this. I mean, they're all versions of love your neighbor as yourself. But having removed it from the context has had the unintended consequence of, of nullifying the Old Testament legal tradition that came before it, let alone New Testament texts that assume the Old Testament law. So if Christ came to fulfill the law, then what he teaches here has to be read in conversation with all of Scripture. And what that means, for example, is that Jesus is not giving us an economic theory in these verses, though we, we may feel the impact of this teaching economically. So he's not teaching us to give away everything we have to the poor as the driving economic principle of our lives. No, he's assuming the economic laws of the Old Testament and he's deepening them to the moment of persecution. Love your neighbor well and the one who persecutes you too. Even in Boaz's day, Jewish people were hesitant to take the laws on gleaning and harvesting seriously, but Boaz gave generously to a woman named Ruth who was not his kin, in fulfillment of the law, who was in fact from a people considered an enemy of Israel at the time. He loved his enemy. He gave generously to her. Even so, just because someone asks us for money does not mean, as Christians, we are necessarily obligated to help, let alone give them everything we have. Every situation requires wisdom. And as Paul points out, it could be that the person asking for help refuses to work. And if you know where he says that, he says, if that person refuses to work as a church, do not feed them. Do not feed them. Or it's like how Proverbs points out, perhaps the person has been enabled by a long history of bad habits or terrible decisions. So giving money to the person might actually hurt them and be an act of unkindness, though immediately it probably feels good to do it. But on the other hand, as James points out, if we see a brother in Christ whose house is burned down or is starving to death and we refuse to help, we cannot rightly consider ourselves Christians. So we're called to balance this and to have wisdom. Likewise, Jesus is not giving us a theory of pacifism, as though our blanket position across the board must be nonviolence. Though there will be times when we are called to refrain from defending ourselves at great cost, maybe even our lives. 
After all, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, who at a word could summon legions of angels, refrained from defending himself and died at the hands of his enemies for the sake of his enemies. As I said at the Wednesday evening men's study this past week, I am all for ordered violence. And I am completely against disordered violence. And it's because the Bible as a whole teaches that, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's why Noah is given the role of capital punishment. You know, something Paul assumes with the Roman Empire too, even as the Ten Commandments say, do not commit murder, or more accurately, do not commit unlawful killing. So I think Jesus' teaching comes specifically within the context of persecution, which the apostles absolutely endured. So even as he's telling his disciples to take up a cross, which is a picture of daily self-denial, but really the reality of possible actual crosses, he's also signaling to his opponents that he knows what they are about. He knows what's coming. And you get the picture from the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are you who are hungry now, blessed are you who weep now, blessed are you when people hate you on account of me, that Jesus is not merely warning of difficult times like all humans everywhere face. I mean, after all, Christians do not uniquely endure poverty or hunger or alienation or depression. That is not unique to Christians. No, he's warning of a coming time when Satan will wage war on the bride of Christ, And those times will be hard, but will not be the end of his sheep. This is a familiar pattern in Scripture that begins with the serpent attacking Eve in the garden and goes all the way to the book of Revelation. It's a pattern still at play today in various forms from ideological battles to outright violence. Now, verses 32 through 30. Four, I think read as a corollary to the woes that we read last week of verses 24 through 26. And as we talked about last week, Jesus is not saying that by virtue of being rich, a person is evil. And by virtue of being poor, a person is righteous. Remember, he brought that out like, you know, but woe to you who are rich, for you will have received everything in this life. No, much like what what John the Baptist preached. This is a warning to the scribes and Pharisees and the leadership of Israel, but also to disciples like Judas, who followed Jesus up to a point that if you reject the Messiah, this life might still be pretty great. I mean, lots of wicked people die comfortably in their own beds every day. But this life will be as good as it gets for you. And there's more life to come after you die. And what happiness or honor or prestige or comfort you enjoy now, as Jesus makes clear in his woes, these things will soon turn to ashes in your death. And Jesus elsewhere speaks of the leadership of Israel in similar ways as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, seeing them as false shepherds who were no better than the aristocracy of Judah who refused to listen to God's promises of life under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and instead made common cause with Egypt. That's always a big no-no in the Old Testament. You know, the place of Israel's literal, its spiritual slavery. 
And they do so in rebellion against God, and they died for it by their own choice. Jerusalem, instead of the city of God, became a spiritual Egypt, and the temple, the symbol of God's presence, was raised to the ground in judgment because of it. And Jesus says, and this is Matthew 24, that God would soon do that again, and the results would be permanent. There would be no third rebuilding of the temple. And so, as Jesus points out here, it's easy to love those who love you or to do good to those who do good to you or to lend to those who lend to you. These were all things that Jesus' opponents did. I mean, even thieves show kindness to other thieves. Even Hitler, you know, the man who has effectively become the boogeyman and the devil to modern people, even that guy showed love to some people. In contrast, Jesus' disciples who have received the Spirit and already have life in the kingdom, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, they can love those who hate them. And like the Good Samaritan, they can do good to cultural enemies and be generous to people who can never repay the debt. And apart from God, people, you know, by virtue of being made in His image, can do some moral good. But that good will be limited, if not superficial. So it's easy for an activist of whatever political ideology to show kindness to someone in their tribe. It's very different to show kindness to people who want you dead. To treat your enemies with fairness and equity when they refuse to do it for you is a sign of life in the spirit because this is what God himself does to all people. That's why he says his disciples will be sons of the Most High. Why? Because they will do the same things God and his son do. God is kind to the ungrateful, and here's what makes God so unique. He's kind to the evil. To the evil. Now think about that. If God was not kind to the evil, and I know none of us here think of ourselves in that term, the earth would be devoid of people. And of course, like with Jonah, one of the chief charges that Jesus' opponents bring against him is that he is kind and gracious to evil people, even going so far as feasting with them and inviting them to be his disciples. Now, as an aside, one of the modern mistakes we make when we read passages just like this one is that we must have feelings of kindness and mercy, that you must feel warmly to those who are persecuting you. That is false. Your emotions do not have to match with your actions in that time. In fact, you may be mourning. In fact, it may be cutting you to your very soul, and yet your actions are a reflection not of your feelings, praise God, but of your God who is at work within you. So as Jesus says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful, and this, of course, is exactly what Jesus himself does. And you have to imagine that when he is on the cross and they are mocking him, he does not have warm feelings towards those people. Even so, Father, forgive. But notice, too, that, that through Jesus, his disciples, this is just kind of tucked away in there, his disciples now have access to God like he does, we can call God Father 
too. We have the same access to him through Jesus as well. And so we too have the privilege of being merciful to the ungrateful and the wicked because we know God as our Father. Well, clearly what the disciples face and what we face, they could not be more different in, in their, their cultural context. I mean, after all, to us, is a, a cross is a symbol, right, in a, in a metaphor. In fact, in many ways, it's something beautiful, like what's over my head. It's not something people actually die on anymore. But still, our times, even with all the rights and protections we enjoy as citizens, and even with the clear impact of Christianity, no matter how much it's on the wane in our country, the impact of Christianity on our culture is huge, and still, our times are not without hostilities and hatred of Jesus. And what has come to be understood as kindness or mercy, even among some Christians, has been understood as being nice or tolerant or open and affirming, all of which are shorthand for, I will accept the behaviors and beliefs of other people no matter what and not call them into question. But a critical component of kindness and mercy, as Jesus teaches it, involves speaking the truth in love, not with arrogance, not with mockery, not with hatred, as many Christians do, but with an eye towards loving God and loving neighbor. So when Jesus preached in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, again, that's, that's Luke 4, they initially liked what he had to say. But the longer he spoke, the more they turned against him and wanted to stone him to death. You know, lots of people initially like Jesus' teaching. I mean, it's pretty common to hear even among atheists them say something like, Jesus was a great moral teacher until they really start to investigate what he means and what he taught, at which point, well, Jesus becomes pretty repugnant to them. They like Jesus just so long as he looks like a capitalist or like a, a Marxist or whatever ideology they hold to. But once you see that he is not any of those things, well, they turn. And it's not you know, a coincidence that many of the hot button issues in our culture right now are all at war with Genesis 1 and 2. And they have been for well over a hundred years. And how God created humanity and what he created us to be and to do. And the war against God's creation really began in Genesis 3, and it's still alive and well. Our times are very much like the Hans Christian Andersen classic fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. And as the story goes, two swindlers arrive at the capital city of an emperor who spends lavishly on clothing at the expense of his kingdom, imposing as Weavers, they offer to supply him with magnificent clothes that are invisible to those who are too stupid or too incompetent to see them, or as people might say, they're uneducated or uninformed. The emperor hires them, and they go to work. And a succession of officials, and then the emperor himself, visit them to check their progress. And every last one of them can see that the looms are empty. But still... They all pretend otherwise to avoid being thought a fool. And finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished. And they mime dressing him, and he sets off in a procession before the whole city. 
and the town folk uncomfortably go along with the charade, not wanting to appear inept or stupid or really to go against the crowds, until a child blurts out that the emperor is wearing no clothes. The emperor's naked. From the mouth of babies, the truth comes. Even so, the emperor continues the procession, doubling down, walking more proudly than ever. And the story is a perfect metaphor for our current times, and it's worth asking, who showed the emperor kindness? The ones who were nice to him? You know, the supposed enlightened ones who were open and affirming? It's cool that you got your truth. Or the child who actually did speak the truth. Are we willing to endure hostility and anger, maybe violence, maybe the loss of our work, for speaking the truth in love? Now, interspersed throughout his sermon, Jesus continues to remind his people why he's saying what he does. Jesus says these little important nuggets. He says, blessed are you, are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. You are the sons of the Most High. God is your Father. Those are all little reminders that you can endure because you already have him now. So no matter the point at which the war against God and his kingdom is raging, we have been given the privilege of knowing him and being filled by his spirit now. So it is a blessing to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Maybe especially when you find them to be repugnant and no better than the worshipers of Baal and Moloch. It is a blessing to be taught by God himself to love as he loves. It is a blessing to walk in the ways of the king even when that path goes directly to a cross. Let me pray for us as we come to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, it is a blessing to be led by you and to walk in your ways and to be sanctified through your spirit. And most of us feel these sanctifying ways, the denial of ourself in things like our marriages or in the workplace or even in Walmart, wherever it may be. But the time may come where our sanctification may be much harder, where the choices we face may be much more difficult and really cost us. As we see with the disciples, as you walked with them, throughout Jesus' ministry to them, and especially in the book of Acts, you are faithful. You do teach. You do sanctify. You do move in your people. So I pray that for us, that you would continue to move in us as well. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.